I just want to acknowledge a couple of things. One is that in our new member class for our church, I do my best to walk new folks through what it is we believe, and we focus on the essentials, things that are essential to being a unified, whole member of Emmanuel Baptist Church. In that list of things that we believe, we do say we believe Jesus is coming back. Jesus will return. We do not have one particular view of how it all will play out in a timeline manner at the end, and we extend a bit of charity and grace to each other on that uh, question, on those issues. I realize, as I've talked with you and as I know many of you over the last uh, eight or so years, I know some of the perspectives that are held within our church when it comes to end time matters, and I know that we don't all agree on all of the specifics. And I just want to say to you at the outset of Revelation chapter 13, my aim this morning is not to present to you any system. I don't want to present to you this school of thought or this school of thought or this school of thought. What I want to present to you is the Scriptures. I want us to hear what Revelation 13 has to say. I want us to hear it in the context of the book of Revelation as best we can as we're flying through the New Testament. But I want you to know my aim is not to press any sort of system on you, but is to call you, to call our church to hear the Word of God this morning in Revelation 13. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Some of you are anxious because you have found not a half page of notes in your bulletin, but a full page of notes. I do not intend for this sermon to be twice as long, but there was a lot of stuff that I wanted to have in front of you as we think about Revelation 13. So let's start with something we talked about last week. I presented you last week with an outline for the book of Revelation. I'm borrowing this structure from a Hebrew scholar named Peter Gentry. He's a world-class Hebrew scholar. He's written all sorts of books, mostly on the Old Testament. He has a wonderful book about the Old Testament prophets and how to read them and how to understand them. And at the end of that book, he has one chapter where he makes the argument very briefly, very shortly, very succinctly, that John wrote the book of Revelation pulling from the Old Testament and writing essentially as a Hebrew prophet. And so Gentry says the book has a prologue and it has an epilogue and in the middle there are seven sevens. And I've added in italics that there is a vision in chapter 4 and 5 about the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Those are the centering, foundational visions of who God is in the book. But Gentry says the rest of the book is structured according to these seven sevens. When you look at these seven sevens, the first one is a bit unique, letters to churches. The last one is a bit unique in that it seems to describe eternity, however you want to divide that up towards the end of the book of Revelation. But the middle sevens, two, three, four, five, and six... According to Gentry and according to the position I hold, all tend to describe the same sequence series of events from different perspectives. And we won't rehash all of that, but we did talk about that last week. We find ourselves this morning in Revelation 12 to 14. Those chapters function as a unit, and they describe seven visions of conflict that characterize life on earth after the ascension of Jesus, and before the return of Jesus. And what I'm suggesting to you is that I agree with Gentry, these seven sevens, especially the middle five sevens, 
They describe what you and I can expect as Christians in between the ascension of Jesus to heaven, which happened about 2,000 years ago, and before the return of Jesus, which has not yet happened. And in our unit, 12, 13, 14, seven visions of conflict, that's the bookends on either side, the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. If you look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, it talks about this male child who we talked about last week being caught up. He is ascended to heaven. And if you look at Revelation 14, 14, it talks about one like a son of man coming back to judge the living and the dead. That's the return of Jesus. And so in between 12, 13, 14, we find John describing what sorts of conflict we might expect as Christian people living between the ascension and the return of Jesus. Now, very quickly by way of review, things that we talked about last week that are important to understanding Revelation 13. Revelation 12, 1 to 6 introduces us to Jesus, who is the central character in the story of history. Jesus is the central character of the book of Revelation. We're about to look at a chapter, chapter 13, that focuses on the dragon and two beasts. But that chapter is located in the context of a book, Revelation, and in the context of 66 books, the scriptures, all of which point to and center on and focus on Jesus. This chapter, 12, 1 to 6, also introduces us to Satan, who is relentlessly hostile to God. We talked about this last week, to God's purposes, to God's Son, and to God's people. Now, what we've skipped is Revelation 12, 7 to 17. That section of verses describes a conflict between God and Satan, or you could say good, ultimate good, and evil, ultimate evil. And it describes it from both a heavenly perspective and an earthly perspective. And I don't want to spend a lot of time in these verses, but I want you to understand the lead up to chapter 13. From the heavenly perspective, Satan is thrown out of heaven, and the grounds on which he is thrown out, the grounds on which he's defeated in this heavenly realm is the blood of the Lamb. Being thrown out of heaven, he has now turned his attention to the woman. And we met the woman last week in Revelation 12, 1 to 6. And my suggestion to you is that the best way to understand this woman is not that it's Mary, but that it's the people of God, which would include Mary as one individual. It's the people of God down through the ages. In the old covenant, it would be the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel. In the new covenant, all of the terms applied to Israel in the Old Testament have been applied to the church. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a people belonging to God. And so now what we read in Revelation 12 is that the dragon, having been defeated in this spiritual conflict, has turned his hostility, his attention, to the woman, to the people of God. And the question for us this morning as you come to chapter 13 is, how will Satan oppose and attack the people of God. And the answer to that question is the big idea of our passage this morning. Satan will oppose the people of God through politics and religion. The two things you're not supposed to talk about during the holidays. Don't talk to your family about politics or religion. We're, we're talking about politics and religion this morning. And specifically what we're saying is that the two primary tools Satan will use to oppose the people of God down through the ages is politics, that is, oppressive governments, 
and religion, specifically in the form of false teaching. So we've read the passage earlier. Let me start off with just a historical note for you to think about. When it comes to Americans in the book of Revelation, it is entirely impossible to overstate the impact of something that theologians would call dispensationalism. There are two men who stand as the fountainhead of dispensational theology, John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield, Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. These two men, some years ago, were the popularizers of what we call dispensational theology. It was not a major system of thought in any sense until these guys came along, both Americans. And basically, we call it dispensationalism because these men taught that we ought to divide redemptive history into dispensations or divisions or discrete units. And we ought to understand that God operates differently in each of these dispensations down through the ages. When it comes to the book of Revelation, which is one of the favorite places dispensationalists love to camp and teach and, and look at, the popularized view from guys like John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield is what you would call the futuristic view of Revelation, or what you could call futurism. It's the idea that the bulk of the book of Revelation only has to do with the very final period of human history. All of these things described in the book, according to a dispensationalist interpretation, don't have much to say to John's readers in the first century. They may or may not have much to say to Christians down through the ages. They really speak directly to the believers who are alive on earth during the last days. And by last days, they don't mean what most theologians mean between the ascension and the return of Jesus. Those are the last days. They mean probably the very last seven years of human history. And so, according to a dispensationalist view of Revelation, there's a couple of emphases in the book that they like to talk about over and over and over again. One is the idea of a pre tribulation rapture. This idea came into existence largely through the teaching of John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield, which I'm just pointing out to you there's a lot of church history before them where this view was not popularly or widely held. It doesn't mean the view's wrong at all. It just means that there's an awful lot of church history that passed until this became a very, very popular view. There's also a focus in a dispensationalist reading of Revelation on ethnic Jews. We have raptured the church out. Now God can resume his program with the Hebrew people, and the focus is on ethnic Jews. And lastly, there is a great interest in the Great Tribulation. And I put that in quotes because for a dispensationalist, that doesn't just refer to the time between the ascension and the return of Jesus. That refers to the last seven or the last three and a half or the very last couple of months of human history. These are the emphases in dispensational theology. They are amazingly influential in the part of the world in which you and I live in the Bible Belt. These ideas have taken root, and we've talked in recent weeks as we were in the book of 2 Thessalonians about why that may be the case. Let me just say this by way of impact for us. For you and I, what the influence of dispensationalism means is that every time a typical evangelical turns on cable news and they say something about the European Union 
or monetary crises or things going on in Iran, China, North Korea, Russia, or certainly things happening in the Middle East, evangelicals in the Bible Belt, they get a little twitch in their eye. They're, they're watching the news and they just start to have this reaction like, oh my goodness, this is it, this is it, this is it, this is it, this is it. These are all the signs. They start to get very anxious. They start to pull out prophecy charts. They start to figure out on charts where what is happening and what's next and what came before it. And it gets a little bit at times unhinged. Now, one of the things evangelicals in the Bible Belt love to talk about, people ask me this all the time as a pastor. They say, hey, I was watching the news, this, this, this. And they're starting to talk about, I see signs of one world government and one world currency. Now, we just read Revelation 13. You can read into Revelation 13 the idea of one world government and one world currency, but you didn't actually read it in Revelation chapter 13. You can read it into the text, but I'm not sure that you can pull it out of the text. Now, I want to go on the record and say, I think one world government is a terrible idea. I want nothing to do with it. I think a one world currency is a horrible idea. I think the move to an all digital currency has disastrous consequences for an awful lot of people. So I think all of those things. I don't want anything to do with any of those things. And I think that it's possible that more Efforts at one world governance, one world currency, digital currency, all those things may be put in place before the Lord Jesus returns. And they will likely be used as a means of oppression and control. However, in the words of my dad, I think most evangelicals in the Bible Belt need to take a chill pill. And they probably need to watch less cable news and read more of the Bible. And not just the book of Revelation, but all of the Bible. I think if you and I focus on the final seven years of human history, that's our burning interest and desire. I think it's a tactic of the enemy to distract us from what might be happening in the present. And I think if all of your attention and focus is on the end, 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 and what this mark of the beast is, and we'll get there this morning, I promise we'll get there, I think you might miss it in real time today. So I want you to have eyes to see what the text has to say, and I want us to respond in a God-honoring manner. For that to happen, and I'm going to move through this quickly, I just want to suggest to you that before you get to the book of Revelation and map it out in expert fashion, I really think you ought to read the rest of the Bible. I'm not telling you to avoid revelation. I am telling you that you can't move two inches in revelation in any direction without bumping into a reference or an allusion to the Old Testament. Revelation is absolutely filled from beginning to end, not with direct quotations of the Old Testament, but with allusions to the Old Testament. And if you haven't read the previous 65 books of the Bible, I don't expect you in any way, shape, or form to be able to make sense of the last book of the Bible. Any more than you would take a, a novel, read the final chapter, and pretend to understand the whole story. You might 
get some pieces right here and there if that's all you've read, but you've missed the whole story and you can't really appreciate the ending until you've read all of it. So what should you read as we think about Revelation 13? Well, one of the verses I think you ought to read is Genesis chapter 2 and 3. God creates all of the beasts. And the Bible says that in the beginning, it was one of the beasts that God created who came to tempt Adam and Eve. I think that you ought to read Job chapter 40 and 41. God is responding to Job and his questions and his anxiety and his misunderstandings. And God talks to Job about his, God's sovereignty over a beast in the sea, the Leviathan, and a beast from the earth, the behemoth. Now, I happen to think that God is talking about real animals, real animals. And he's saying to Job, these are the greatest creatures that I've created in power and size, and I control them. And I think that in the context, God is also talking to Job about forces of evil. That's what Job's really wrestling with. Why are all of these evil things happening to me? What is going on that I don't understand? And I think God is giving Job some insight in those passages. I think that you ought to read Daniel 7. I can't emphasize this strongly enough. Daniel 7 essentially is Revelation 13. It's pretty much the same. It's the same sort of ideas. It's the same presentation. If you haven't understood Daniel 7 in context, I don't have any expectation that you can really make sense of Revelation 13 on your own. I think that you ought to read Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus describes what you and I can expect in between his ascension and his return. It's essentially the same scope of history described in these middle sevens in the book of Revelation. I think that you ought to read 2 Thessalonians 2, where Paul talks about a man of lawlessness. I think he's the first beast that we read about here. I think that you ought to read 1 and 2 John, where John talks about antichrists, plural, plural, and antichrists, singular. And by the way, those are the only two places, 1 and 2 John, where you will find the word antichrist in the Bible. It does not show up in the book of Revelation. But I think the Antichrist and the Antichrists that John is talking about, John, who wrote First and Second John, is very similar to what we're reading about in Revelation 13, also written by John. I think that you ought to read Revelation 17, a parallel passage. Now, there's part of me that would love to put all this up on a big board and run red string between a bunch of bullet points and try to connect all these things in some sort of chaotic manner for you. We have Sunday school coming, and we're going to have Sunday school this morning. And in the second service, there's a football game, and people are going to get up and leave, and they're going to go watch this football game. So we've got to get done in some reasonable manner of time, which means I just want us to walk through the text. We're not going to say everything that could be said, but I want to talk to you about the beast from the sea, and I want to talk to you about the beast from the land, and I want to talk to you about this mark at the end of Revelation 13. So what could we say about the beast from the sea? The first thing is this. This beast is incredibly and supernaturally powerful. Verse 1, he has horns, heads, and diadems, all symbols in apocalyptic literature for power. Verse 2, he's described as a leopard, bear, lion. Oh my. It's Daniel 7. 
It's all straight out of Daniel 7. And it's the culmination of all the beasts that Daniel saw in Daniel 7. Verse 2, the dragon who we know to be Satan gives power to the beast. Look at verse 4. He is so powerful that people ask the rhetorical question, who can fight against him? And the implied answer to that question is, you can't overcome his power. No one on earth can overcome the power of this beast. Look at verse 5. This is important. He is given authority. It's the same Greek root that we would use for the word power. He's given authority. He's given power for 42 months, which is three and a half years, which is 1,260 days, which many people try to connect to the very, very, very end of history. But what I told you last week, I think is better to see as the entire period of human history between the ascension and the return of Jesus. When you read the book of Revelation, if you want to take a number literally, you better have really good reason to. Because most of the time in Apocalypse, we don't take numbers literally, we take them seriously as symbols. And I think the best way to take this is the period between the ascension and the return of Jesus. Look at verse 7. He's given authority over every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. It's fascinating. We have already read in the book of Revelation that Jesus ransomed people from all of those groups. And we've already read that in the end, Revelation 7, there will be a multitude from all of those groups standing before the throne worshiping the Lamb. But for now, in this period of history between the ascension and the return of Jesus, this beast has been given power and authority as the God of this world. John uses that phrase elsewhere. It's the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He has power. Secondly, this beast from the sea is said to have a mortal wound which was healed. Verse 3 literally says he had a, this is the Greek word, plague. Plague. Normally we translate that Greek word plague. He had a plague. But in the context, because it's applied to a, a person and a head, it's translated correctly as wound. This is what I want you to understand. In the book of Revelation, it is always God who sends plagues. God is responsible for plagues, for plagues, for this wound. This beast that is wound has a wound to its head. In the context of Revelation, your mind ought to go to chapter 5, where you read about a lamb who was slain. And in the context of the Scriptures, your mind ought to go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God promised Adam and Eve that one day the offspring of the woman would crush or bruise or wound the head of the serpent. And what you understand, if you've read the entirety of the Scripture, starting in book 1 all the way to book 66, is this beast is Satan. He was wounded at the cross where the lamb was slain, but the head of the serpent was crushed. And in the context of redemptive history, you and I understand that this is a mortal wound, that this serpent, this beast, is not dead yet, but he's dying. It is a mortal wound. Thirdly, the beast from the sea blasphemes God and demands worship. Verse 5 and 6. 
And I would simply point out to you a small phrase in verse 5. In most English translations, it comes across as was given. It was given. This is what your sixth grade English teacher counted you off for in your essays. It's the passive voice. You're not supposed to write if you want to write good, strong English in the passive voice. But John's using the passive voice to say, it was given to this beast to blaspheme. Who gave it? In the book of Revelation, it's always God who gives. He gave. He gave this authority to blaspheme to this beast. It did not come from the dragon. The dragon doesn't give in this sense. But God gives. And what John is telling you in using this passive is the beast will be held responsible for its blasphemy and ultimately God is completely sovereign over all of this evil that he is allowing to happen. None of it is escaping his notice. None of it is is escaping his power. He has limits on all of it. Just like you see in the book of Job. God sets limits around Satan. He allows certain evils to happen. He gives this authority to his enemy, but God is ultimately sovereign. One more thing to see about this beast from the sea. He makes war on the saints. On the saints. Notice the contrast between verse 7 and 8. The beast makes war on the saints. That's a word in the book of Revelation that refers to Christians. And I would simply point out to you that here in Revelation 13, this beast has arrived and he is making war on Christians. That's the woman from chapter 12. It's the people of God that he's making war against. They've not been sucked out, snatched out, pulled out. They're there. And this beast is making war against them. And notice in verse 8, there's a contrast between the saints and those who dwell on the earth. All who dwell on the earth. In the book of Revelation, that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, always refers to non-Christians, unbelievers, people who are in stubborn defiance towards God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you see, there's a contrast. There are saints around during the time of this beast, and there are those who dwell on the earth. There are non-believers around during the time where this beast is in power. So that's the beast from the sea. Let's talk about the beast from the land. And we'll start with the same observation. This beast from the land has tremendous power. Verse 12. He exercises all of the authority of the first beast. It's tremendously powerful. Secondly, he is referred to in other passages as the false prophet. And I've given you some references. Revelation 16, 19, and 20. All of these passages, these three I gave you, they talk about the dragon, they talk about a beast, and thirdly, they talk about a false prophet. And when you go back and you read Revelation 13 and you line it up with those passages, you realize this second beast is that false prophet described in chapter 16 and chapter 19 and chapter 20. He has a religious role to play in what's unfolding. So thirdly, he deceives people so that they worship the beast from the sea. Deception is involved, and the deception leads to the beast from the sea being worshipped. Very quickly, verse 13, great signs and fire from heaven. Does it not make you think of Elijah calling down fire from heaven? Does it not make you think of Pharaoh's magicians who mimic 
and reproduce some of the signs and the miracles that Moses performed and Aaron performed in Pharaoh's court? You've got to read the Old Testament to really make sense of the New Testament. Look at verse 14. There's this image of the beast that is made. Does it not make you think of Nebuchadnezzar and his statue on the plain of Dura and the command to blow the trumpets and for everyone to fall down and worship this image? And you think of the three Hebrews, Shadrach, Mishael, or Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were their Hebrew names and they refused to worship this beast. Verse 15, it said that this second beast gives breath to the image of the first beast. Where have you read something like that before? You've read it in the creation account when God breathes life into human beings. These beasts are mimicking God's activity. They're copying and aping and trying to, to reproduce what God has already done in history. Look at the end of verse 15. Those who refuse to worship the image, it says, are slain. Believers. People who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. They're killed because they refuse to worship the beast. And as we see to be, to be followed, they receive, uh, refuse to receive this mark. So this is the last truth about the beast from the land. He causes those who dwell on the earth to be marked. To be marked. I think there's an obvious parallel with Revelation 7, 1 to 9, where God seals His people. He doesn't seal them to keep them from suffering. He seals them so that they can stand on the day of judgment. Remember that. Revelation 7, those who are sealed are sealed so that they can stand when the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb come back and it says their wrath is great. Who can stand when the wrath of the Lamb is poured out? The Bible says, Revelation 7, those who have been sealed, this great multitude from every nation, people, language, tribe, they're the ones who can stand. Now, I want to say a word about this mark, the mark of the beast. This is the very end of Revelation 13, verse 16, 17 to 18. I want you to see a couple of things that John actually says, and then we'll talk about theories. John says in the end of Revelation 13, this is the number of a man. It's the number of a man. And he says it requires wisdom to calculate the meaning of this number. Is the only place in the book of Revelation where you are called to calculate anything. It's the only place. It requires wisdom to calculate. It's the only time that word shows up in Revelation, this number. So what do people make of this? Well, there is an ancient practice called gematria. Gematria. Gematria is you take letters, and you assign them a number value. A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3. You lay them all out. You add them all up. If you do that in English, I am 155. Gematria, 155, Landon. A lot of people think that what you ought to do with this 666 is go backwards and figure out a name, okay? Like, going backwards in a math problem. You have the final number, 
and what you need to do is go backwards. Here's the problem. When you go backwards into Greek, and this book was written in Greek, it's really hard to come up with anything that makes sense. I mean, it's really hard to come up with it. You can misspell words intentionally and come up with something, but it's really hard. So what a lot of people do is they transliterate. It's different than translating. They transliterate. They take the sound from Greek and they try to put it in Hebrew letters, characters, and then they try the math and they add all of these numbers up. And if you do that, some scholars argue that you can take the name Caesar Nero, transliterate it from Greek to Hebrew, add the letters up, and it equals 666. A lot of scholars say you have to misspell it to get there. And a lot of scholars say it doesn't actually add up to 666, it adds up to 616. But it's a very popular view. He's talking about Nero. View number two. You're going to like this one, I think. In Revelation 17, there is a reference, verse 11, to an eighth king. An eighth king. Are you ready for mathematical gymnastics? If you add up the numbers one through eight, you add them together, guess what you get? 36. If you add up one to 36, guess what you get? 666. So some people say there's got to be a connection between Revelation 17, 11, because 1 plus 8 is 36, and 1 through 36 is 666, and you tie it all together and you can figure out who he's talking about. Maybe that's your view. One view is that in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings, it is said that Solomon imported 666 talents of gold to his kingdom. He did this at the peak, the pinnacle of his power and his prestige right before he slid into idolatry. And some people say it's just an Old Testament illusion. 666, Solomon was a man. It's a reference to Solomon. He was great. He was powerful. He was mighty. He had political power. He had religious power. And he slid into idolatry. And there was a consequence. And he's trying to explain to you what this might look like. There's a lot of guesses. In all honesty, when it comes to 666, I think I read about 20 different guesses this week about what this means. And I'll be honest with you, I came away thinking to myself, with enough mathematical gymnastics, you can prove whatever you want to prove. And if your mind is convinced about a certain formula to get to this or to get back from it or whatever, I'm probably not going to convince you of anything at all. But I will tell you my view, and I'll tell you my view as we move into truths that we need to take away from Revelation 13. Here's the first truth that I think we need to take away from this chapter. Evil only exists as a perversion of what is good. In the beginning, God said everything is very good. You and I know that now some things are not very good. There's evil in the world. And it only exists as a perversion of what God has created good. And Satan can only imitate the one triune God. The one true triune God. Listen, in the book of Revelation, the view of God that dominates this book is that God is a trinity. The one who sits on the throne, the Lamb, and the seven spirits. Father, Son, 
in spirit. That's the vision of God that animates the book of Revelation. Presumably, the number of this perfect, holy, righteous, just, triune God would be 777. And what you just read in Revelation 13 is a parody of the Trinity. Almost all Bible scholars agree about that. There's the dragon who is granting authority. There's a beast who was wounded, just like the lamb was wounded. And there is this third beast, this false prophet sent out to promote and to advocate for the worship of the first beast, just like the work of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus Christ. Satan is the most uncreative person in the universe. He is completely derivative from who God is. He comes up with nothing original. And when he tries to flex his power in the course of human history, all he can come up with is this cheap, knockoff imitation of the one true God, the triune God. And I think what John is saying to you at the end of describing the work of the dragon and the beast and the beast is that he falls short, he falls short, he falls short. Six, six, six. It's not the real thing. It's an aping, it's a parody, it's a caricature of the one true God. That's all that Satan can come up with. He falls short. Second truth. The conflict in these verses exists in the past, it exists in the present, and it will exist in the future. I don't really care how you interpret the book of Revelation. I do care, but for the purposes of this truth, I don't care. This is true. This is true truth. What you're reading about here in Revelation 13, you see on the pages of the Old Testament. You see it in nations like Egypt and Babylon. Those two world empires bookend the Old Testament. Exodus all the way through the exile. Egypt and Babylon. They both act like these beasts. They have blasphemous names written on their forehead. They claim for themselves things that are not theirs to claim. They use economics to manipulate people into worship. You see it in the Roman Empire in John's day, the first century. The emperor plays the role of the first beast, and the imperial cult plays the role of the second beast. The imperial cult comes alongside citizens in Rome and says, we need you to worship Caesar as Lord. We need you to take a pinch of incense, throw it in the fire, and say the words, Caesar is Lord. And if you don't, there will be a consequence you won't like. You understand that in the first century, that's the mark of the beast. Rome's not going around tattooing 666 on people's foreheads. They're simply asking, just burn a little incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And the first Christian said, we can't say that. We can't burn the incense and we can't say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. We can't do it. For many of them, it costs them their lives. You see these forces at work in the Middle Ages leading up to the Protestant Reformation, which is why if you go back and read the Reformers, they often talk about the church and the pope as a beast or antichrist. They understood 
that the forces described in Revelation 13 were playing out in their day. You see it today in totalitarian states, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran. Government powers that try to control the worship of their people towards false idols or no God at all. You even see it in Western democracies. And if you have eyes to see it, you can look around the world today at quote-unquote free countries and you can see that the government is using its power with economic threat to promote a worldview that is rooted in human beings being the center of everything, human sexuality being the highest end, and no one is allowed to dissent from the ideas and the worldviews being promoted by the regime. To such a point that churches, there's rumblings increasingly, Churches, it's been talked about, may lose their tax-exempt status if they don't support a certain view of marriage or gender or sexuality. Christians in certain professions might lose their jobs if they refuse to go along and pinch that incense to Caesar. Poor nations are being held hostage over foreign aid depending on whether or not they will support this idea of what a human is, what a man is, what a woman is, what marriage is. You understand? Do you have eyes to see what's happening? Economic threats, they're not allowed to buy and sell. Economic threats being used to promote false worship. And you can worry all day long about whether in the final seven years of human history somebody's going to put a microchip in your hand. Or you can realize that it's already going on today. Not a tattoo, not a microchip. Just this proverbial pinch of incense and in saying Caesar is Lord. How do we respond? Number one, we overcome Satan and the forces of evil by the blood of the Lamb. The beast is wounded decisively at the cross. Revelation 12, 11, part of our section describing the conflict, says that they overcame the dragon by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus has ransomed people from every tribe, nation, language. They're His. That's the source of our victory. Finding our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and His salvation. This ransom, this redemption, this purchase with His blood. Secondly, until Jesus returns, we're called to endurance and faith. Endurance and faith. Revelation 13.10, right in the middle of the chapter, says this is the call. This is the call. Here's the call. The endurance and the faith of the saints. Even if they threaten your head, even if they threaten your bank account, endurance and faith. Now let me say two things that ought to make everyone in the room mad on some level. I'll try to be an equal opportunity offender. You ready? We do not overcome the forces of evil with Second Amendment rights. I'm all for Second Amendment rights. They're not going to overcome the forces of evil. You will not be able to overcome these forces of evil 
with the best team of lawyers that money can buy. And I'm thankful for lawyers in the United States of America. I'm thankful for our legal system. I'm thankful for for lawyers just in recent weeks who have won cases at the Supreme Court defending religious liberty. But ultimately, they're not going to be able to overcome the forces that we're reading about here. You're not going to be able to overcome these forces with majorities of your party in government. Now, I have very strong opinions about which party in our country that I want to be in power. And I have a lot of reasons for that. But I understand that party having any kind of majority, supermajority, the whole thing. It's not going to overcome these forces. We overcome evil. We overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And the call on your life is endurance and faith. Endurance and faith. Now, let me say something that might make the other side upset. One of the great differences between you and John, who wrote this book 2,000 years ago, is that you live in a country, you live in a country where you have rights that John did not have. You have the right to vote. You have the right to freedom of speech. You have the right to be in this room this morning without anybody threatening you. You have the right to protest if there's things happening in your community or your state or your nation that you don't like. Those are precious rights that precious few people in human history have ever had. You should not take them lightly. You should exercise those rights. And by all means, when you go to vote and you hold in your hands a tiny piece of the power of the state, political power, you should vote for people as you look at their lives and you look at their statements who line up with your convictions as a Christian. By all means, you should do that. For the life of me, I do not understand people in the world today who try to castigate and cast guilt on Christians because they want to vote for people who either have Christian character or will enact Christian policies, biblical policies, to the best of their ability. I don't understand that. And what I'm saying to you is that there's some tension here that ought to make us a little bit uneasy. There is nothing politically that you or I can do to overcome these forces of evil. Nothing. The call on your life is endurance and faith. No matter what the government says, no matter what the imperial cult says, no no matter how many times they tell you to pinch the incense, endurance and faith. And at the same time, you have a very real responsibility as a citizen in this country to make the best use of the rights that God has given to you. And to vote for people who may not usher in this sort of stuff. That's your responsibility. The call on your life, endurance and faith. The responsibility you have is to be a good citizen and to wield the power of the rights that you have in a God-honoring way. Last, I'm asking the question, what is our response? This last one, I'm making a statement and I'm saying Jesus will return to bring judgment on those who have sinned. That's clear from the end of this section in Revelation chapter 14. One, like the Son of Man comes back, He brings His redeemed people with Him, and He comes to judge the living and the dead. You say, the question is, what is our response? There's no response in this third statement. And you're right. I'm simply laying it before you, reminding you, 
that however we may agree or disagree about this book, the Lord Jesus will return and he will return to judge the living and the dead. And the question that's posed earlier in the book of Revelation at the end of chapter 6, here's the one who sits on the throne, here's the lamb, their wrath is great. Who can stand? Left to yourself, it's not you. You had better take refuge in the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, and you had better do it now. The only way you will be able to stand in the day of the wrath of the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne is if you have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. Believe the truth about who God is. Confess your sin to Him. Put yourself in this category of sinner without making any excuse. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. Believe and endure. Let's pray.